Please turn your Bibles to John chapter 17. We'll read from verse 20 to verse 26. This is part of the high priestly prayer of Christ. It's not always as it seems. Sometimes this might be fun, like an optical illusion when you have these mirrors that kind of distort the way you look and you have fun with them. It's not always as you seem. Sometimes it's a sight of a mirage. A mirage is what appears at a distance to look like a pool of water, but it's actually just sand and the rays of the sun reflecting off the sand in the desert. It's not always as it seems. Uh, as a child approaches a surgeon uh, with his injection or his scalpel in his hand, uh, you begin to see the tears in the 10-year-old um, because they think this is merely harm or damage to them or pain. It's not always as it seems when we look at the church and the peers poor, fledgling, and probably insignificant. The disciples were going through this season, and the Lord Jesus Christ saw that it was even going to be worse than what they were seeing in the moment. And the night before that, the Lord Jesus Christ takes time to comfort his people, to show them that it's not always as it seems in the moment. And so this is part of the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll begin to read from verse 20 of the passage. Jesus prays, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in me. Sorry. That they also may be in us, so that the word of God may, so that the world may believe that they, that, that you who have sent me, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love me, even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus here is uh, giving 
the last words before his death. He begins in chapter 13, and that's just before the, 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 the Lord's Supper, or that final feast with his disciples. And he says, having loved them, he loved them even more. And he begins this farewell discourse from chapter 13 right up to chapter 17. This is probably hours before he's arrested and finally um, he's put on the cross. And so this is the most unique passage, I think, in the New Testament because it's not only him giving instructions to his disciples, but he turns now and prays to God. He turns now and is having this intimate discourse with the Father in front of the disciples. And the disciples are having are hearing in on the Lord Jesus Christ's heart to his people. He had just shared with them the Passover. He had just washed their feet. And now he speaks these words of wisdom, these words of love, these words of great affection, and these words that are meant to encourage them. And words that are also meant to make them see what will happen just after this in a very different light from perhaps the way that it seems. So Jesus Christ here from chapter 17 and verse 1 prays for himself, prays for his disciples, and in this last section that we're looking at, he actually prays for the future church. We divide our passage into three. Firstly, Jesus prays for unity, verse 21. Then we'll look at uh, Jesus desires to be with his church. This is for the church glorified. And then finally, Jesus' motivation, verse 25 and 26. Jesus prays here. It's a marvel that he who was both God and man prays. God is seeking here to uh, hear his son, but also to answer his plea, his plea. We know that this is a prayer that was answered because it is prayed by the Lord Jesus Christ to the Father. What does he pray? Or rather, firstly, who does he pray for? He says, I do not ask for these only, but those also who will believe in me through their words. He's just been praying about the disciples, and he's saying, I, I'm not just praying for the disciples, but for all those who will believe. Everyone in future who will trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. I love to hear someone say, Oh, Pastor, I am praying for you. And I wish in that moment I would also say and reciprocate and say, I am praying for you. And sadly, sometimes it is not. But it's always good and heartwarming to hear those words. This is the Lord Jesus Christ himself who is praying in our hearing. And he has us on his heart. He has your name on his heart as he prays. What a comfort this should be that he prayed for you on this night as he prays for all those who will believe. What then does he pray for? He says that they may be all that they may be one, even as I and the Father are one. He's really trying to say there that there might be unity amongst God's children. You see, that's a phrase that's repeated in verse 21. He says that they may all be one. In verse 22, he says that they may be one even as we are one. 
In verse 23, he says that they might be perfectly one. You can't miss it. He prays for the unity of the church. And then he compares this unity. He says that they may be one just as. Those words are words of comparison. That this unity might resemble another unity. A unity that already exists. A unity between the Father and the Son. This is a unity that is from eternity past. In fact, he actually uses particular words to describe his relationship with his Father. He says, uh, Father, you are in me and I in you. That is the relationship, the intricate relationship between God the Father and God the Son. It's an intimate relationship. And throughout the pastoral prayer, this high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ, he actually refers to that intimacy between Father and the Son. That the Father and the Son are one. This is what we call the doctrine of the Trinity. That they share the same very nature. In essence, they are one. They have been eternally one from eternity past. They have enjoyed communion uh, with one another. They have distinct persons, but yet they have been eternally one. There is one God. And like what the Muslims would say, that Jesus was a product of God and Mary, that's not what we believe. We believe that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit eternally existed in eternity past. And that's what he's praying here. For this loving communion, the intimacy that he had with the Father, uh, he prays that they may be one just as we are one. He is not play, praying only that they would model that communion in heaven. Let's look back at the scriptures. He goes on to say that they may be in us. Uh, that they might be in us. Now that's unique because he is not only praying that they might resemble it, but actually that they might be connected to the Father and to the Son. And this is our spiritual union with God. He's saying that we might uh, be connected, spiritually united to the Father through the Son. That just blows our mind. We are not just to model it, but we are to be connected to the Father and the Son, that they might be in us. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ prays here. He prays for a unity that is rooted in our being connected to the Father and the Son. So it's a, it's a unity that comes from being united to them, but also it's a unity that flows from there, and from there we are then united to one another. That's what he's describing here. Uh, he, he says that we might be in the Father and in the Son. The unity that he prays for here is not a mere outward unity. It's not a mere organizational unity. It's not just arranging in small groups or having the church, you know, uh, arranged through activities. No, it is an organic union. A union because we are connected to Christ, therefore we are connected to one another. Christ is that hub. 
and we are like spokes, you know, taking the analogy of a, of a bicycle uh, rim. And so those spokes can never be connected without the sun or without the hub. And so Christ is that connection. And so Christ does not only save us so that we might be connected to him and the Father, but he saves us so that we might be connected as a fellowship together, so that we might be fashioned as a people together, as a family united as one. And this union comes from our spiritual union with Christ. Paul, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uses the analogy of a body. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 17 says, If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each of them, as he chooses. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, we are many parts, yet one body. So he gives us the analogy there of a body. We are interconnected to one another. Different parts, yet all connected. Very unique in all our differences, but all helping one another. That is what the church is. In verse 21, he says, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. We see there, he's describing the work that he has begun to do. And he's, he's saying that we might be united to him through the work that he has accomplished. He is talking here about the work that he accomplished on the cross. Now it's interesting that he's talking about this work as though it is already done. So in a sense, this prayer, um, maybe its rightful place would have been after um, his death and resurrection. Probably after his ascension. Because he speaks of this as a work that he has completed. Uh, but in a sense, he's giving them a foretaste of what his intercessory prayer in heaven would be. And so as he prays, he is referring uh, to himself as having accomplished the work, um, as, as one who is uh, praying that he will be with them where he is, and yet he was still with them there, because he's praying for something that is future, something that is yet to happen. He prays here for unity. Let's just take a few minutes to practically look at how this unity looks like in the life of the church. How does the Father answer this prayer for unity? I have a few thoughts here. Um, I was greatly helped by uh, Bobby Jamison and his meditation on what this unity looks like. Believers experience this sweet unity amongst one another. You know, that sense of you meet another believer or another group of believers and you say, yes, they are just like me. A true believers enjoy this sense of fellowship wherever they go. They see uh, glimpses of um, Christ in others. They see glimpses of things that they are familiar to. The songs, the, 
the reading of the scriptures, the prayers, they, they already sense this sense of connection. But also, there is a connection with believers all over the world in what we believe. In one Lord, one baptism, and one faith. So we have a sense of unity with one another. True believers confess one faith. The same triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The same incarnate Savior. The same incarnate sacrifice. And also the same resurrection and the longed-for return of Christ. So there's a unity of uh, what we confess as a faith for all believers in all time. And so believers have this sense of unity in what we experience. Every believer would tell you of how he saw his sin, he saw his need of a savior, and he turned and trusted in Christ. And lo and behold, he was transformed by the new birth. And the things that he did not love were the things that he loved. The things that he once loved are the things that he hated. This is a common experience that we share in as believers. We have a unity in prayer. We have a unity as we come to the same God through the, to the Father, through the Son, and by the Spirit. And so we access God, God's presence as God's children. And so there is this unity that the Lord Jesus Christ was praying for. But we know that this experience is often marked, especially on this side of eternity, um, with sometimes it doesn't appear that way. Maybe even in people who we have fellowship with, it is sometimes broken because this unity is one that we need to work on or to manage. Or to use the words of Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 3, he says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. God will answer this prayer as we use the means of grace to grow this unity, to maintain this unity. Be very clear, we as believers don't create this unity, but we are called to maintain it. We are called to grow this unity. It sometimes needs effort to repair this unity. I'll talk about three, four, four threads to this unity. The first is um, our personalities. Uh, we are all very different, and we come with our personalities. Some of us are loud and boisterous, and when we speak, we speak with raised voices, perhaps even with hands being waved around. And this might appear to some as being very arrogant. And perhaps even sometimes you think that it's sinful. Oh, he's being so rude in the way that he's coming off so loudly to me. And for some of us, um, it's probably ourselves or probably our culture. Um, we would not look at someone directly in the eyes. Where I come from, if you're talking to an adult, you will look down. And for some, that appears dodgy, shady. What is this person trying to hide when he's talking to me? Um, and, and, and so these things about our personalities, uh, some of us are very quick to, to shed tears. And, 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 and for some of us, we don't easily relate to tears. 
Well, if you don't, especially for you men, that is called emotion. Be clued on in it. It's very important as you relate to your wives to be able to understand in those times when all they speak with is with tears. And so these are different ways in which we relate to one another. And sometimes these might be perceived as sin. Well, the Bible calls us to be patient with one another, to be able to understand one another, to be able to appreciate where the other person is coming from. And if that personality is not my personality, if I'm not that extrovert, someone is not sinful merely because he's an extrovert, I should grow in my understanding of the other brother. And we should be quick to, in times when we dismiss people merely because of their personality. The second is really um, other people's sin. Have people wronged you in this church? How have you responded to those wrongs? Have you just in, 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 in anger just kind of stormed out, I'll, I'll, I'll not speak to that person again? Uh, or, or have you just kind of cut that person off? You know, that person doesn't exist as far as, I exi- as, 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 as I'm concerned. Well, how does the Bible call us respond? It calls us to forbear in times of sin. It calls us to forgive in times of sin. Colossians 3 verse 12 says, Put on then as God's chosen people, holy and beloved, compassion, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. We are called to be a forgiving community. When one sins against the other, in order for there to be a reconciliation, uh, the offended the offender must come and reconcile and make things right. It is not always like that in a fallen world. I think there is obligation even on the person that has been offended to forgive. That's what the Bible says. There may not necessarily be reconciliation, but the Bible calls us to forgive. Mark 11 verse 25 says, But when you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that the Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. What the Bible is saying is that it doesn't need for you to wait for the other person's initiative, but you can forgive, implying that you do not hold a grudge against the other person. You divest that sense of bitterness um, and, and you don't hold on to that grudge. You give up the sense of retribution, of they must feel it, I must punish them. This means that we ought to be a people that are quick to forgive and entrust the matter to God. Even before reconciliation, um, praying too that there might be reconciliation. And so it's not only other people's sins that can disrupt uh, or break that unity. Sometimes it is our own sin. And um, how is this a threat to unity? 
Sometimes our own sin is not very visible to others. Meaning, it may not be that direct, but some sins are very directly harming our unity. One of them is pride. The sense of self. A very uh, self-centered approach to things. Another is um, envy. Now, envy may not actually be seen, but it is harbored in the heart. And I will not draw close to the person that I envy. In fact, it harms me. It is, it is that which causes me to have something against the other person and therefore draws me away. It puts a wedge between them and me. How should we respond in such cases? Well, be quick to see your own sin. And not just to keep it within, but to repent and pray that the Lord might cause you to delight in the good that God has granted to his children and to rejoice with them. Now sometimes these can be very difficult times. Something that you have really, really prayed for and the Lord grants it to someone just next to you. The Bible tells you to rejoice with those who rejoice. In those times, Pray that you might have contentment. Pray that you'd overcome your envy. In fact, I might, must just go a bit further there. Pray for ways in which you serve the same person that you think you're envying. How can I serve them? How can I love them even more? Sometimes what breaks our unity as believers is different opinions. Now the Bible here says in verse 20. That um, we, in fact, from verse 21, it talks about us having clear convictions that we might believe, those who will believe the word. Now, it's important that we as believers are people who uh, have clear conviction about the word and believe God's truths. But sometimes our differences are such that um, we cannot possibly exist in unity. There are certain differences in conviction that are really tertiary or secondary, and those should not destroy the unity of the church. What am I talking about here? Differences in um, what we believe concerning head covering, um, or differences on what we believe concerning uh, the spiritual gifts may not be things that divide us. And so those Differences, secondary differences, may not be differences for which you want to divide with others. In fact, I would encourage that you actually speak about those differences and get to know what the other person believes, even if it's different from you. But at the same time, there are differences for which there ought to be clear division. And for such, the Bible calls anyone who holds to these different uh, positions as one who is a deceiver. How would I characterize these differences? I think uh, one, I, I was on your website in the course of the week and uh, saw the statement of faith. Those things that you have listed there as a statement of faith, if anyone was to believe something different from those, those are primary uh, things. Things like the Trinity. If someone was to believe that there was no incarnate son or that God um, is just one, not in three persons. 
Those are things that the Bible calls us to actually divide over. That you cannot have unity with such a person. But over secondary things, the Bible calls us to actually um, uh, exist with the other person. And so, how would we do this? I think one way to foster that unity is to, to, for us to actually have discussions with others, appreciate the other person's viewpoint. And sometimes it's a matter of growth. You want to be praying that the scriptures might be open to the other person, that they might see the scriptures in the way that they are. And these differences are, are differences that um, are not primary. How do we know primary differences? Your statement of faith. Secondary differences are differences about day of worship, um, how the Lord Jesus Christ will return, um, whether I should wear a head covering or not. Those are things that we should be willing to be different on, but still exist in unity and have fellowship one with another. Be humble when you're having those uh, theological conversations with one another. Care for, the one, for one another and show visible love. Those things should not threaten our unity. In fact, those differences should actually just strengthen our unity one with another. They should deepen our love as we continue to show this love that overflows because we are in the Father and in the Son. Uh, and so it's important for us to uh, not say that this unity means sameness. We are different, and there are some things that are secondary or tertiary that we might be different on, but in our core beliefs, we must be exactly united and uh, in one. It's a unity based on truth. Unity, as we see in verse 21, will provoke the world. And in verse 23, 23b says, So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you love me. Verse 21 says, So that the world may believe that you sent me. This unity will provoke the world as they see your oneness. And so the more that you live as a community of regenerate, of those that are born again, being united on the gospel and in the Lord Jesus Christ, the world will be curious about you. How will they see this unity? The things that you talk about, the people that you talk about when you're at your workplace. Oh, I was at church and I was with Sister X and Brother so-and-so. Oh, this is what we do on Sunday. Invite them here to have a glimpse of what this looks like in the way that we share fellowship. Be at the church activities. And if you're not a member, join the church. This is how we grow in unity with one another. As we um, move on into the next uh, section to look at just what Jesus desires, I want to just pose this question for, to you. Are you a force, are you a net force in uniting this church? Or are you a net force in causing disunity in the church? Is the church more united or less united because of your presence here? There is no neutrality. What can you do to promote and to preserve the unity of this church? 
Jesus here prays for the unity of the church as one of the last things that he prays for, that the world may see and believe as they see an authentic witness, a compelling witness of what um, the gospel looks like in the lives of his children. Jesus desires that his church be with him, that his church be glorified. This is Jesus' longing. This is Jesus' desire. Let's look at that from verse 24. He says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you love me before the foundation of the world. What we see there is Jesus shows us his heart. He kind of just opens up his desire. And he's praying to the Father. It's not even a request. It's just that I desire this. Pretty much like um, your, your, your spouse, your wife, or your husband, or someone close to you. Sometimes they don't even need to say, I want this. They just say, I, I desire this. And you'll be up and out and saying, my wife wants pizza, and so I'll go out to see where's the best pizza place in Fujira, because this evening we'll have pizza. Because just said, I desire. That's what this is. It's a longing. It is a desire that he expresses. And he says two things. One, that they may be with me. And secondly, that they might see my glory. Firstly, it's that they might be with me. What Jesus is saying here is so, so profound. The profundity of what he's saying is really saying his satisfaction in heaven is incomplete without you and me, without his church being with him. He continues with this longing within until each one of God's children is drawn to him. What great love that he has for us, his people. And he says here, to those whom you have given me. Now this phrase is replete throughout this prayer. He uses this to describe God's people. He says, those whom you have given me. Jesus is saying to the Father, those whom from eternity past you gave to me. He's not praying for the whole world. He's not just praying for empty seats. The Lord, uh, you feel this with I don't know who. No, he's saying those whom you gave me. These are his chosen ones, the elect, God's people. That is special. Those are the ones that Christ came to die for. Those are the ones that will come to believe. These are specific individuals that the Father has given the Son. They are the ones he's saying here that they might be with me in glory. Jesus is praying and his prayer is, is, is heard by the disciples encouraging them and strengthening them that they will endure to the end. Why? Because these are the ones that God the Father has given him. And so the Lord Jesus Christ prays for this work as though it is complete, that they might be with me where I am. The Lord Jesus Christ was just there with them. But no, he's actually praying for that time in glory that they would see his glory. Seated on that throne, worships by tens of thousands of angels. Not in the battle clothes that he was with 
right there, about to go to the cross, but no, robed in splendor, that they might see his glory. But the, one, the way that he describes his glory is uh, in verse 24, he says, To see my glory that you have given me, because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. We see this glory also uh, described in verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. He talks about this firstly, about his glory, firstly in the past tense. Sorry, we have no time to go and, and look at that, but in verse 5, he actually prays that the glory that I had might be given me, implying that glory that he had in eternity past, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But here also, he prays for the glory that he has been given, that he would give those that uh, the Father has given him. And also, finally, future, that they might see my glory. And so he prays for it in eternity past, uh, immediate, see, and also in the future. His disciples had a glimpse of this glory through the miracles that he did. The Lord effortlessly provided for 5,000 men. And I'm sure there were children there and there were women, probably double that number. All he did is, Father, thank you for these five loaves. Thank you for these two fishes. Please bless them in Jesus' name. Amen. And effortlessly, they began to distribute this food. And it fed all the 5,000 men and women and children. They saw his glory when he healed those who were sick. They saw his glory when he stood in that boat. In the middle of that tempestuous storm, he simply said, effortlessly, peace be still. And immediately began to ask, what kind of man is this? They saw something of the glory of God. The three disciples, remember on the Mount of Transfiguration, the veil was removed and they were able to see a glimpse of God's glory, of the glory of Christ, as he there in the company of Elijah and Moses uh, communed with them. But Jesus is not only talking about that glory of the things that he was able to do amongst them, uh, his appearance and so on. He is also speaking about what was to come. Remember when I began? It always doesn't seem the way it looks. He was just about to go through this time of excruciating pain, of injustice, the worst injustice of being put to, uh, to a cross and being nailed to a cross and being shamefully naked, laid on that cross until he had died. And he's trying to help his disciples here see that actually that is victory. That is how he was to have victory. That his glory was to come through the cross. And so he's trying to make them see what they're about to see with different eyes. Philippians chapter 2, verse 8 puts it this way. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, 
so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That was a glorious event as Christ took our place and bore our punishment that we might be reconciled to him. And so he's saying that we might see the accomplishment on the cross as the most glorious event. Glory is seen in two ways. Firstly, we describe glory as in something that is beautiful, something that's radiant, something that is full of splendor and majesty. The other way that we describe glory is I give glory to. When glory is manifest, we give praise and we give honor. That's the other way that we use the word glory. Here, he's describing what was going to happen on the cross. And you're saying, this was going to give God the maximum glory. This was going to be the greatest display of God's character to us, of God's love to us, of God's justice is displayed on the cross of God's reconciling himself to us, of God's reaching down to the depths of sin and drawing a people to himself. This is glorious. That God would love that which is sinful and come down in the person of his son and bear our sin. This is a display of God's glory. God created us to be satisfied in seeing beauty and glory. Remember Adam and Eve in the garden? God created them and put them in the garden. But he put them in the garden to display his glory. Adam and Eve were ruined by the fall. They fell. Uh, they sinned against glory. According to Romans 3, they fell short of God's glory. They wanted to reflect their own glory, their own self to the world. And so they committed treason. They turned their back on God and took God's position. And God, from that point, pronounced death. Adam and Eve and all of Adam and Eve's generations deserve judgment. But we all have this sense of what God created us for, glory, to see glory. And so sometimes we want to see this in our careers. We want to see this in the pleasures and entertainments that we seek. We want to seek this in money. We want to seek this in relationships. Well, we can only come back to the relationship that God calls us to by turning from sin and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in John chapter 1 and verse 14, this is what the Lord Jesus Christ says, And the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we have seen his glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The only way we can fully realize and see and know this glory is by coming to Christ, is by turning and trusting in him. In fact, here, he says, we have come to experience of this glory. He has given us of this glory. As we experience something of the forgiveness of sin, of being reconciled to God, 
of a unity as God's people. This is glorious before God in heaven. And so Christ is yearning for that time when he will be with his own in heaven. He says, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me. That's the time when with unveiled faces we will see the beauty, the wonder of Christ in his full glory, to gaze at that beauty and behold our God and the great salvation that he has wrought in, in us. And so this petition is a petition that is answered every time a child of God dies and goes off to heaven. It is Christ's prayer being answered. And we all should long for that time when we will be with him in eternity, enjoying of this. This ought to amaze us as God's children. In those times when you are discouraged, look back at the cross. See what Christ has done. This is the love of God displayed to sinners. He gave up his son in order to reconcile sinners to himself. How then does he love sinners and enemies? In the same way that he loved his son. He gave up his son that he might love us. And so we see here that Christ prays that we might be where he is. The destination of us as a church is finally glory. We are not a poor, fledgling you know, church in God's sight. This is what is the apple of God's eye in Fujira. And God delights in what's happening here more than what happens in all these emirates. And he wants us to see that it's not what it seems. Lastly, Jesus' motivation. Verse 25 and 26. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and those and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. You can see the word know appear there several times, I think about five different times, and says that they might know him. And through knowing him, we might experience of this love. Jesus is addressing the Father and he calls him righteous Father. He says he is one who is upright, he is one who is righteous, who is perfect, who is good, who is right in all his ways, and that he has reconciled us to himself through Christ. How are we to experience of this love? By knowing the Father through the Son. He says, in contrast to the world, the world has not known you. All other religions who seek to claim to know God or seek to make their way towards God do not know God because the only way we can know God is through the Son. It is through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he talks about here knowing Him. And it is through knowing Him that we can know the Father. This is the Bible's vocabulary about how we can be 
God's people. It is by our knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3 of chapter 17 says, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. And so we can only know the Father in the way that he has manifested himself, and this is through Christ. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me. That's verse 6. And verse 7 of the same chapter says, Now they know that everything you have given me, I have given to them. We see that the Lord Jesus Christ is the means by which we can know the Father. It's not by natural birth, being born in that Christian family. It's not through going through particular rituals. It is through knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we, as God's children, want to proclaim Jesus Christ to the world. If I want to grow in my knowledge and love for God, I should know the Lord Jesus Christ. Our job is to share the Lord Jesus Christ to the world, that they might know this God. As individuals, we come to hear of this word, of this truth, and this opens our eyes to God's love for us. What does this mean for us in application? Well, the Lord Jesus Christ has provided the church and the ministry of the church is the ministry of teaching and preaching. And so I was very excited this morning to see you going through that Bible study on how to study the Bible. It is through that that you get to experience, to know this God and to experience the love uh, that uh, God has given through his son read good books. I've seen some good books on your books on your bookstore there. I saw one on relationships. Uh, there was one by Sharon Dickens on relationships. There was also another by Ed Welch, which was encouraging one another, building relationships in the church. And one that I benefited from even in preparing this message was The Compelling Community, a book by Mark Dever and Jamie Dunlop. If we love this unity, if we love the church, I expect that we will read these books. We'll, we'll, we'll disciple one another. We'll pick up a book and say, let's read this book together as God's children. Uh, we should be discipling one another. What's the effect of us knowing this God? He says, I have made, verse 26, I have made, you known, I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This love overflows from our knowledge of God. He describes here as that same eternal love that was shared Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's not brotherly love. It's not romantic love. It is that intimate love eternally shared between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in which they delighted in which one another, in which they took pleasure in one another, in which uh, they were satisfied fully in one another. He says that same love is what overflows to the church. That is a springboard of the unity that we are called to. It's the love which causes us to look at the Lord Jesus Christ and says, I will forego the different personality of that brother or the cockiness of the way that that person approaches me 
or even their sin because of the great love with which I have loved, I've been loved. That same love which overflows to others. That same love that seeks to serve and to delight in others. As we today break the, Lord, the bread and uh, drink of the cup, it's a reminder of this same unity, what the Lord Jesus Christ prayed for. The reality of this uh, unity that we have is here seen in the emblems before us. And so as God's people, we ought to find that pleasure, that delight in serving, in loving one another, in being those that show forth or experience this unity as God's children, as those who are adopted sons and children of God. What greater glory can we see here on earth than God's people dwelling together in unity, seeking to grow in Christ's likeness? What's our response to this love? In The Compelling Community, this is a quote by Jamie Dunlop. He says, to follow Christ is to love others. Love between believers isn't a sign of maturity. It's a sign of saving faith. How can we be that compelling community? Mark Dever and Jamie Dunlop say this in, in, in that book. They say, our greatest confirmation of the gospel is the community of the local church. Therefore, our best strategy for reaching the world is to fan that community into a raging inferno of supernatural witness that will be far more attractive than any adjustment to our music, to our small groups, or sermons could ever give. This ought to be us, that compelling community as God's people. We know that the church will prevail because Jesus Christ intercedes for his church at the right hand of the Father even now. And his prayer is effectual. And so let us turn to this God in prayer.